0: The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Alright, good evening everyone. Good evening. Glad to see you tonight. Welcome if you're online. I know some will be joining us online because they can't be here this evening. Deuteronomy 23, this is a little bit more of a sensitive passage for those of you listening. Those, uh, it's talking about who are uh, held out from the congregation. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. And nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. That's a nice word, the Lord your God loves you. Notice the very vast difference between the nation of Israel and the church. The nation of Israel is a nation. It's made up of a certain kind of people. Uh, ethnicity and uh, qualifications. The church has none of that in its constitution. Okay, It's entirely different. One of the big, big arguments for a difference between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament, at least as far as national versus spiritual. Verse number 6. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother, You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. There is a man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night. Then he shall go outside in the camp and he shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water and when the sun sets he may come into the camp." Also you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out and you shall have an implement among your equipment and when you sit down outside you shall dig with it and turn it over and cover your refuse. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore your camp shall be holy that is not defiled or dirty that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. I think that's very interesting in light of some of the things that have been happening in some of our inner cities lately. Verse 15: You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you; he may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. Boy, that's almost like the—that's the official underground railroad right there. You know, very interesting. Uh, verse 17, There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest But to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you and all that you set your hand in the land uh to you are entering, sorry, to possess. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it will be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. Okay, better not to vow what, than to vow and not to pay. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Very interesting laws there governing the nation of Israel. All right. Well, let's do another scripture reading, and Second uh, Kings sixteen this time. Please, Second Kings and the sixteenth. Not too long of a chapter, just twenty verses. Let's see what we can learn here from this portion of scripture. Second Kings sixteen. I trust you're turning there in your copy of God's Word. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwell there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. So he's, he's proposing an alliance with this uh, pagan king to uh, get these other nations off of his back. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. Evidently, he wasn't minded to trust in the Lord, was he? He was more mindful to trust in gold and silver and human. Yes, right. And, uh, and, and to trust in the king of Assyria and trust in uh, chariots and horses rather than in, in the name of the Lord his God. So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried its people captive to Kir, and killed Rezin. Now, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. And when the king came back from Damascus, the new the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. Boy, it's going from. Worse to way worse here. This is terrible. So he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. This is totally violation of the Word and will of God. No surprise from this fellow who did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's how it's summarized by the writer of the kings. Um, he should have only been... Uh, focusing on the central altar, of course, not any other altar of his making. Just because the king says so doesn't make it right, does it? Might does not make right. Yes. Uh, He also brought, verse uh, 14 says, he also brought the bronze altar which was before the Lord from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, on the new, great, on the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering, their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. And the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. I wonder who he's going to inquire of at this altar. Thus did Urijah the priest, according to all that King Ahaz commanded. King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them. And he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were on it, under it rather, and put it on a pavement of stones. And he removed the Sabbath pavilion which they had built in the temple. And he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. Well, that's going to be a different story. Thank the Lord for that. Yes. Okay, we have a question here. The question is: Is the king the? Oh yes. Okay. So the question is: Was the king of the tribe of Levi? And the answer is no; he was not. The question arises because he offered burnt offering and and so on at the altar. He was not authorized to even uh, to make directly offerings. Now, sometimes, just to be sure that we're clear, you'll read uh, in the Bible of King David. Uh, or other kings who made an offering, but they did it legitimately through the agency of the priests. So you can say, you know, King so and so made an offering, but he didn't do it directly at the altar. Uh, that's uh, not totally made clear here if that was the case. But it doesn't matter because it was at the wrong altar. He probably did do it. He didn't have any minds to be obedient to God uh, and so on. So. Uh, He could not be of the tribe of Levi because the kings only could come from the tribe of Judah, at least in the south. They came from who knows where in the north because it was just an entire uh, debacle up there in the northern portion of Israel at that time. So, uh, of course, you have uh, Uzziah, an example of a king who uh, made a a bad offering and was consigned to leprosy, wasn't he, the rest of his days. You have Saul who made unauthorized uh, offerings, not waiting for... Uh, the judge um, to come Samuel to come and care for those, as he was told, so there's a lot of issues of disobedience surrounding these sacrifices that occurred there, so yes, a good question, yes, sir, okay. North and South split. Yeah, at the end of at the end of Solomon's reign, and I don't have that, so the question is when did the split of the north and the south occur? So under David it was a United Kingdom, under Solomon it was a United Kingdom, under Rehoboam only very shortly was it a United Kingdom. And uh I don't have the exact year in my head, but around a thousand B C. It's around there. Okay, somewhere a thousand and nine hundred. Um, Yeah, and it may be that I have not um repeatedly taught that number like I have 722 BC for the demise of the northern kingdom, 605 597 and 586 BC for the demise of the southern kingdom. They had remember Nebuchadnezzar came and made three incursions in and uh three strikes and you're out and that was how it worked for them because Nebuchadnezzar was sick of their of their rebelliousness against him. So but yes, around 1000 uh, BC. So they persisted in this state for some centuries. Yeah, and, uh, and of course the southern kingdom even longer. But uh, yeah, hopefully, well, hopefully the, the nation would have learned its lesson. Uh, it certainly did not learn it well enough to be looking for its Messiah when he came after John the Baptist announced his coming. But uh, hopefully, well, someday they shall. They shall look upon him whom they pierced. They shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. They will recognize that their nation rejected the Messiah on uh, round number one. Round number two, He's not going to be rejected. He will come and invade them. We'll speak a little bit about that even this evening. All right, so our question uh, at hand is this. I received this question this week. And uh, here's how I put it. Please differentiate between the battle of Armageddon and Satan's rebellion after the millennial reign of Christ? Is there a difference between these two events? When does each event occur? Now, have you ever had that situation when you're reading the Bible and you're thinking, Armageddon. Now, it seems like, it seems like it's in the tribulation, but then it seems like it's over here and we're not quite sure. And Yes, that, that is a common point of uh, confusion. So, let me try to... Uh, Again, quickly go through the whole timeline of future events as we've extracted it from Scripture, and then we'll put these two events in their proper place and see if they are differentiated or not. In fact, they are. They are distinct future events. So, what's next on the timeline? The rapture. Next after that, the tribulation. Okay, Christians gone, Antichrist comes. Alright, after the tribulation, then you have the Millennial Kingdom. After the Millennial Kingdom, you have the final Great White Throne Judgment. And then you have the eternal state. Okay, So, I just walked us all the way through the book of Revelation without you knowing it. Uh, we'll go through that again in just a moment. So, common cause of confusion here. And part of the, the confusion comes because of the, the biblical prophecies of apocalyptic war, as I call it, are very similar. When war happens, people are killed, things are destroyed, and it doesn't really matter what the method is, whether it's trench warfare Whether it's modern, you know, uh, bombing from airplanes or uh, rockets or whatever, or if it's whatever, some ancient form of of warfare, Uh, the the results look similar. You've heard many people say, you know, after a tornado goes through, it looks like a bomb went off, or it looks like a war zone or whatever. It's all the same, it's just destruction. So, you you read different passages and you see, man, all these things look similar, it's because war is war. (laughs) It's bad news. Okay, so, um, it's easy to confuse the two things that are mentioned regarding Armageddon and the final rebellion of Satan. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the final rebellion of Satan. So, turn your Bible back to Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10. Revelation 20, 7 through 10. Now, we're relying on the literal interpretation method. Okay, we don't look at the Book of Revelation as if it's fulfilled all in the past. We don't look as, as if it's inaccessible in terms of its symbolism and metaphors uh, such that or figures of speech such that we can't understand it. No, in fact, we can understand it. This morning in the young people's class, I, I was substituting for Jansen and I took them through a, an outline of the entire book of Revelation in our 35-40 minutes together and uh, showed them how it is the case that we can understand the book of Revelation. It's not a mystery. It's not super difficult, even though it has that reputation, falsely so. So, the time, and we rely, we rely upon the literal interpretation method, and when we do that, it gives us a generally chronological arrangement of the book of Revelation, starting especially, well, through the whole thing, but especially in chapters 4 and following, as to. Things that John saw that are far into the future to him and still yet future to us. The order of events in the book of Revelation is generally chronological. Generally so. Chapters 1 to 3 concern circumstances around the time of John's writing. Revelation 4 and 5 are uh, concerned his catching, his being caught up in a vision to heaven and seeing uh, the heavenly throne room. Chapters 6 to 18 then address the tribulation okay and uh, so ever after that it's it's after the rapture in the timeline it's the tribulation and beyond the tribulation has its unfolding sequences of judgments and the figures that are used are first seals then trumpets then remember bowls those and there's seven of them each the first group of seven unwinds to become the second group of seven, which then unfolds to become the third group of seven. And so they're given in somewhat, just in a kind of orderly fashion. And each with a new outpouring of divine judgment on the earth. And I might add the sequence of sevens as you move from the uh, seals to the trumpets to the bulls, they become more intense and more uh, furious and fast as you go along. So it's kind of like, you know, one, two, three, and then the next session. One, two, three, and the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I mean, really moving along. God's pouring out His wrath. Uh, that's what's going to happen in the future, in the tribulation, divine judgment on the earth. Then, in chapter nineteen, John reveals that in his vision, God shows him that Christ will close the tribulation by returning in glory with His people, the saints, and all the angels. These again are future. Events. This is not something fulfilled in 1914 or uh, or anything else. Okay, it's the future to us still. Um, And so the Antichrist and the world's armies, who are in charge during the end of the tribulation, will gather to make war against Christ and His army. But that would be to absolutely no avail. The beast will be captured. That is the Antichrist, the false prophet. They're cast while still alive into the lake of fire, says Revelation 19. The rest of their army will be killed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 20 opens with what will happen next. That Satan will be bound for a thousand years. That's chapter 20, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. Okay, He's bound for a thousand years. Uh, and he's put in where? He's put into... Um, a uh, very unpleasant kind of place, okay. This is, this is, uh, what do you call it? Max, uh, security prison here, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, the place, the a, a present incar- arc- incarceration, excuse me, of many demonic spirits until they are judged and sent into another place called hell itself, okay. This is the bottomless pit. Look at verse 3. He cast him into the bottomless pit, into the abyss and shut him in, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. That's the purpose of being shut in for Satan. Okay, uh, And then next, Christ will rule over his kingdom for a thousand years. You look at verses 4-6, through six, it's very clear. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And look at the end of verse 4, one of the longest verses in the New Testament, in fact. It says, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, what happens before the thousand years? Satan is put away. Before that, the tribulation. Before that, the rapture, right? Okay, we're getting our kind of orientation on the timeline. What happens after the, or during the thousand years is the reign of Christ. And now, what happens after the thousand years? Well, it says in verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Where? In the abyss, in the bottomless pit. So, when you look at the book of Revelation, and I've done this before in teaching it, I will start people with the end of the book first. Because it is so painfully clear, the chronology. The last two chapters are the eternal state. Very obviously. There's no sin and crying and sorrow and death and pain and all that. Very clear. New heavens, new earth, tree of life, all that stuff. You go back to chapter 20, there's a final judgment, which we're going to look at, and then this. And there's a thousand year marker. There are things that happen after the thousand years and things that happen before the thousand years. That is very helpful to establish the basic timeline of the future. And you can work your way backwards from there. Okay, so where are we at? We've got the reign of Christ a thousand years. Then Satan is released. And what does he do when he's released? Well, he does what he was locked up to not do. Okay, He was locked up so he wouldn't deceive the nations. When he comes out, he does deceive the nations. He will immediately go back to doing what he's always done. And even doing today. That's at the end of verse, or the beginning of verse 8. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Okay? Now, mark it, my friends. Listen. Look, Satan is deceiving the nations. He will deceive the nations when he's released. What do you suppose he's doing right now in August 16th at quarter to 7 p.m. in 2020? He's deceiving the nations. Okay? All the nations of the world. How does he do that? Well, I don't have, I'm not going to go into preaching on that. I've said it many times before. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see how. If you're a Christian with two eyes in your head, you should be able to see. I've been telling you for years from this pulpit. Still, some of us, some of our countrymen as well, don't get it. They think everything they hear is like accurate, true. I I would just caution you. Figure this. The most of the stuff that you hear, you probably should suspect it's propaganda. Just to start with. And then when it's proven itself out, then you can believe that it's true. But Satan is about deceiving the nations. That's just how it is. Now, the evident goal of Satan's deceptive campaign is to do what? Well, the text tells us. He's going to go to Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Okay, So he is going to gather a following from those who have been in the kingdom, but unwillingly living under the rule of Christ in the latter years of His kingdom. They have been living in utter utopia and they still don't like it. Why? Because they want to do what their sin nature wants them to do. They will be no different than sinners from all other ages. ages. Okay? Totally depraved. They need to be saved, but they've rejected the knowledge of the truth, even with Jesus present. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus was present for 33 years before, and they didn't accept Him then, right? Yeah, this is this is well right, but see, it doesn't matter because their philosophy is we will not have this man to rule over us. We want to rule over ourselves. It's self autonomy. That's what people always want. When you get saved, you reject self autonomy, and you come under the Lord's aut—not autonomy, but his his rule, (laughs) his sovereignty, his. His autonomy is his choice over you. That's so you're under his lordship. Okay? Now, um, this is just exactly what Psalm 2 says is going to happen. The the heathen rage. They don't want, you know, let us cast their cords from us. We will not have him to rule over us and and the, the one who sits in the heavens will laugh. He will have them in derision because he's going to set his king on his holy hill in Zion. Well, he's already said his king on the holy hill in Zion here, so that's actually from before. So I don't want to confuse you by mixing the two things. But the attitude of humanity is the same—sinful humanity. Um, so John observes in the heavenly vision what will occur after this gathering of these people. Now I mentioned uh, Gog and Magog from verse number eight. These are uh, these names match those of history in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it appears, as I understand it, that Magog is a region situated to the north of the Middle Eastern region up near the Caspian Sea and Gog is a ruler of that group of people. Okay? Now, their exact identity really doesn't matter. God doesn't give us a lot of details about that. We would love to know, I'm sure, but world history will, will unfold and kingdom history will unfold and we'll see exactly who those are. Now, the coalition of people that are gathered because they're deceived by Satan will commence war on God's people. Notice verse number 9. By the way, their number is as the sand of the sea. So, it seems very strange, but there's almost going to be a remnant even in the Millennial Kingdom because the vast majority of... well, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say majority, but tons and tons of people are going to follow this deception. They went up on the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. A fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. What a fool's errand they were on. Did they really think that they were going to stand up against the God of the universe and do this? Delusion and rebellion combine in the hearts of the wicked and will result in their own demise. They lift themselves up and God will push them down. This, as far as I understand, will be the first action of war in the history in the history of the kingdom. In other words, for a thousand years there will be no war. This will be the first war after a thousand years, the pox millennia that Christ will establish over the world. The human condition today is riddled with war. And it will take the presence of Christ to cause that to cease. And it will for a thousand years as we've just read, but then there will be this little burp of the depravity of humanity and God will take them over and defeat them. He will send fire from heaven much like Elijah did. Remember, not Elijah, but Elijah asked God to send it from heaven. 1 Kings 18.38, He sent the fire Burned up the offering, burned up the water, burned up the wood, burned up the rocks. I mean, this is a super hot fire. And this, what's that? Okay. Okay, one second. So, this is going to be the final stroke of divine war against the wicked in the whole of world history. It will, it's supernatural. It requires no saint to risk life or limb. In defending the city of God, it will be completely of God. The victory is utterly total, resulting in the death of all the rebels. After this, then judgment will be executed on the losing army, on all those in the losing army. Now, when I say that, they're dead, okay, but what's gonna happen next is that they're gonna stand before the great white throne judgment, having been resurrected for the purpose, the express purpose of judge, being judged. Oh dear. You had a comment or question? It's kind of of, um, conversational,
1: so don't don't be uh, required. Okay. I've always been curious about this moment of warfare. In that, you see how violent the effect of the family is. Yes. The Lord just
0: wipes them out.
1: throws them away in fire.
0: Yes. The question is, what was their weaponry to use against god i mean it's it's kind of like what they 've done is they 've done the reverse of what God called for at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, where He said, "Beat your swords into plowshares and your you know and your swords into pruning hooks." Well, they took it in reverse, and they took the farm implements and they turned them into instruments of war Well, yeah, I mean, even a nuclear bomb against the Lord doesn't do anything. Yeah. So. Yes. No. And and. If you think about It's preposterous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. God has ensured gravity will bring the bullet right back down where it came from. Yes. So. The thought, the question has to do with the thought of sinners standing up against God and thinking that they're going to defeat Him. Uh, You know, well, in their collective will and their collective power, they figure they're going to put down uh, the God of the universe. But it's, as I say, a fool's errand, completely and utterly ridiculous. And he says, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I am He. They fall backwards. Right. Of what man can
1: do against
0: God. That's right. Just the very Word of Christ. Yeah, right. Yes, that's a very good picture. So, now, that's what what happens in this war. And now look at verse uh, 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, the lake of fire and brimstone, or what we call hell, has two residents there already. You notice that. Where the beast and the false prophet already are. They were thrown in there from chapter 19. So, Satan joins them. So, the unholy... Trinity, as it's called, will be roommates in this place of torment, the eternal prison house of divine retribution for the rejection of God and all that is good and right and this ends the final rebellion of Satan he will never be heard from again he will always be in this place of incarceration, never to be able to escape okay this is this is uh, this is not even as easy to escape as Alcatraz okay. Uh, or not as hard to escape as Alcatraz. It was not easy to escape there. So, now there are two more big events after this in, in, in the chronology. Number one is the Great White Throne Judgment. That's described in 11 to 15. And then you have, and by the way, this is the judgment, I take it, of all unbelievers of all the ages. All the believers have already been judged and resurrected and, and participated in the kingdom and so on and so forth. Uh, there's some a little bit of a question about that, but that's we'll leave that open for now. Following this, chapters 21 and 22 speak of the new heavens and the new earth. The people of God will dwell there for all eternity with no threat of persecution, no threat of satanic deception, no threat of, of sin, <clears throat> a sorrow, of woe, or a rebellion against God or anything. There will be the Christians... The holy angels, the tribulation saints, the millennial saints, the Old Testament saints, all will worship and serve the Lamb and God the Father in the fullness of the Spirit forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Okay, very good. Notice that's the new heavens and the new earth. Primarily focused on the new earth with the new Jerusalem. That's where we'll live. Okay, that's, it's going to be like an earth because that's what it's going to be a new earth and it's going to be a very special thing what's that uh-oh hold that question i'm only halfway done answering this question <laughs> just hang on so all of this happens at the end of the 1000 years that's why i started with this first because this has all occurred at the very end satan is released deceives gathers this war this nation these nations they war against god they're defeated quickly And everything else that we talked about after that—that's all at the end of the millennial kingdom. You with me? Now, let's go back. If it's at the end of the millennial kingdom, then the other event that we're going to talk about is Armageddon. It must be before the thousand years. Indeed, that is the case. All so, all we talked about before occurs after, uh, of course, after the tribulation at the end of the millennium. Okay. now, in reading the, the text that we did it here, we never encountered the name Armageddon, did we? We have to go backwards in Revelation. Now notice, when you turn your pages back, you're moving back in time. Okay? Back in time, which is yet still future to us, but before the thousand years. Go to Revelation 16. In Revelation 16 and verse number 16, it says, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Okay, so clearly this is an event which is before the one thousand years because that didn't isn't recorded until chapter twenty. We're four chapters before that. Okay. Okay, Revelation sixteen, verse sixteen. One six one six, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Armageddon. Now. This word comes from the Hebrew phrase Har-H-A-R. Har-Megiddo. Har-Megiddo. It's the proper noun which names a place in Israel located around the current, what's called the Tel-Megiddo. I'll explain all these words in a moment. Of this ancient city. Now, Har means mountain or hill. So when we say Armageddon, it's like saying Mount Moriah, all in one word. It's Mount Megiddo, okay? Mountain or hill. Megiddo is the is the place name, okay? not. not I'm not going to find any significance there. It's like Dexter. What does Dexter mean? It just means Dexter, okay? It's a proper noun, okay? Um, And so this is in a place near the current tell. Megiddo. What is a tell? Tell is also a mound, but it's the mound resulting from the dwelling, uh, ancient dwelling place of a city where they built the city and then it was destroyed or burned and they built on top of that and then they built on top of that. And so when you're in the, in the plain, the plain of Esdralon, and you're looking, you have, you have here a mound which represents that's where the city was. So if you were an archaeologist, you're going to look for these specific kind of tells, mounds, and you're going to start digging. You're going to find all kinds of cool pottery and artifacts and all that sort of thing. That's what that is. OK, now, according to Britannica, it overlooks the Valley of Jezreel. It lies about 18 kilometers or sorry, 18 miles, 29 kilometers, 18 miles, southeast of Haifa in northern Israel. Now, that might not help you so much. It's south let's see. If this is the Sea of Galilee, it's southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And you have to go north uh, from there you have to go northwest to get to Haifa. Okay, so it's down a little bit from those two places. Now this is what they say. Megiddo's strategic location at the crossing of two military and trade routes gives the city an importance far beyond its size. It is about the same distance southwest of the Sea of Galilee, I mentioned, and about sixty miles north of Jerusalem. Thus, Armageddon is a is a military action named for the place that it occurs okay when I say Gettysburg, you know immediately what I mean a battle a military action that occurred over three days and Pike and whatever all those guys were okay uh, or Antietam Antietam Creek north of Sharpsburg, Maryland those are my uh, 8th grade project to work on some of that in, uh, in, uh, in the Civil War. Um, so obviously we have the names of places that, that are the names of uh, battles as well. Now, Ezrilon, this is another word, but it's the Greek form of the Hebrew Jezreel. Now I want you to listen. This is very interesting history. The name of Esdrelan is the name of the Great Plain Flat area, which stretches across central Palestine from the Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. So th- remember the Jordan is on the east, the Mediterranean Sea is on the west, right? So it's the plain between them. It separates the mountain ranges of Carmel and Samaria from those of Galilee, extending about 14 miles from north to south and 9 miles east to west. It is drained by that ancient river, the Kishon, which flows westward to the Mediterranean. From the foot of Mount Tabor, it branches out into three valleys. That on the north passing between Tabor and Little Hermon. That on the south between Mount Gilboa and En-Ganim. While the central portion, the Valley of Jezreel proper, Listen, runs into the Jordan Valley, which is about a thousand feet lower than Esdraelon by Beth Shan. It is here, it is here, get this Gideon gained his great victory over the Midianites. Barak defeated Sisera. The army of Saul was defeated by the Philistines. King Josiah, while fighting in disguise against Necho, king of Egypt, was slain. This plain has been well called the battlefield of Palestine. It has been a chosen place for encampment in every contest carried on in this country from the days of Nebuchadnezzar of the Chaldeans in the history of whose wars with Arfaxad it is mentioned as the great plain of Esdurlan until the disastrous march of Napoleon Bonaparte from Egypt into Syria, this same location. Esdralon, Valley of Jezreel, the area of Armageddon, Har Megiddo. Now, remember that Revelation is generally chronological in order. So, where do the events of Armageddon fall? The Armageddon event is described amid the seven bowl judgments. So, remember, we we have seals, we have trumpets, we have bowls. That last sequence of seven. Amidst these bowl judgments... You look in chapter 16. If your Bible has headings, you'll see first bowl, second bowl, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. It's right in there. Seventh is, starts in verse 17. So the last, this is the last of the three series of judgments, and I understand these to ramp up in speed and intensity, like I talked about before, so that the seven, first seven unfold into the second, the second unfolds into the third, and increasing with speed as the as the sequence moves along. So this must be sometime near the end of the tribulation, not right at the beginning. In contrast, the final rebellion of Satan is a thousand years later, near the end of the millennial kingdom. This is near the end of the tribulation. That's near the end of the millennial kingdom, okay? Two different events. They're definitely different events, even though they have some similarities. Here's one similarity that might throw you off. Look at this with me. Look at verse, we're in chapter 16, right? So look at verse 14. For they are spirits of demons. These are unclean spirits coming out of the dragon. Performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Okay, So the demons gather together the people of the world. Now look at 20 verse 8. Satan is going to go out and will deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to do what? To gather them together to battle. Very similar language. The first time it's, the first time it's the demons. Then the second time, at the end of the millennial kingdom, it's Satan himself. You know, he's like, well, if they couldn't get the job done, I'll do it myself. You know? Well, he didn't get the job done either. So, very similar language about them, but they are at different times. And this should not surprise us. demonic forces are all about war the devil loves to kill people you know that he loves to destroy things it's totally crazy when you think about it. people do such dumb things and you wonder why you know some places in the world you give them uh, aid money and they build and then they destroy it and then you give them aid money and they build and then they destroy it and they scratch their heads and, and wonder why are we so poor because you keep destroying things, that's why. But that's what, that's what Satan does. He blinds people to the obvious. Okay, so, um, we do well to understand that Armageddon is not a single event. I mean, I think sometimes we think, okay, this happens in like a 24-hour period. That's not how war works. You know, we say D-Day. Okay, what was D-Day? Was it 24 hours? With all this preparation beforehand? All this secret preparation, and the, the bombing runs the, the, in, the, in the days and night before, and sending all our boys on the troop carriers, and thousands of them being killed, and they finally getting, you know, into the land, and, and then carrying on this campaign all the way to Berlin. I mean, this is months and months in preparation. In this case, years uh, of. Of battle, so we we look at Armageddon properly as the pinnacle of a larger military action, that is not just a single battle, but a campaign for the entire region. It took perhaps several years. I'm sorry, it will take perhaps several years, Uh, and it ends at the at a strategic spot called Armageddon. Actually, also ends at Jerusalem itself. But the larger uh, war will include much of the territory of Israel. So think of Armageddon as a battle, as part of a larger war, okay? Now look at chapter 14 and verse 20. Chapter 14 and verse number 20. I believe this refers to the end of this battle. And uh, again, as I said, Revelation is generally chronological, but there are some interludes and and, uh, interruptions and things, scene changes and so on. In chapter 14, verse 20, it says, "And the winepress was trampled outside the city; the blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That's 184 miles. 184 miles measures much of the distance from where we're talking about, up near Haifa, all the way down to Jerusalem, and and below that, south of that, into the Negev, the south desert." Now go back to chapter sixteen. Chapter sixteen, verse thirteen, talks about the behind-the-scenes work of demonic powers to uh, produce deceitful signs to convince people to gather near Jerusalem and take the city. Sixteen thirteen says, "I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet." That's that unholy trinity again. These are spirits of demons. Performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth. So they're performing signs, and these signs are meant to deceive them so that they will gather them together to battle. Now, what are they going to do? They're going to come together and try to defeat the people of Israel and destroy Jerusalem. Now, this is all part of a a whole clash that's going on between the Antichrist, who's now residing in Jerusalem. And the kings of, of the north, you have the kings of the north, the kings of the south, all, all kinds of stuff. Not everybody's going to be super happy with the Antichrist and his rule in the world and there's going to be opposition to him. Now, it's not time for us to go into all those details and frankly, I don't have them all fresh in my mind. It's very complicated to go through and figure out what all is happening. You have to look at Daniel 11 and, and all of you know, the section of Revelation and so on and so forth. But needless to say, this is a major conflagration. Okay, It's a major problem. Uh, it's basically World War III. I mean, it's what it's going to be. And it's a mess. Jerusalem is going to be in severe danger. And the Lord is going to save Jerusalem in the nick of time. And how is He going to do that? Well, listen. The prophet Zechariah tells us in chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. All nasty things will happen there. Okay, Remnant of the people shall not be cut off, however, from the city. Then, verse 3 says, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. And in that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is the second coming which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move to the north, half of it to the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that there will be light. Then you have the living waters will flow through from uh, Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea, so Mediterranean and Dead Sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day it shall be the Lord is one and His name won. Sound like 1 Corinthians 8 this morning? There's only one God. Only one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, uh, very, very interesting to connect these passages together. I hope you find the same as well. So, the Lord returns and He saves Jerusalem, defeats this, uh, all of this, the Antichrist, these, all these armies coming together to defeat Jerusalem and wins the battle as described in chapter nineteen. Yes, nineteen. One's in nineteen. The end of Armageddon is in chapter nineteen. Um, the other one, the final rebellion of Satan, is in twenty. But just because they're two chapters immediately adjacent to one another, they're a thousand years separated. If you believe the thousand years, literally, like we do, then you're going to say, oh, well, the Bible sure covers a lot of events in two chapters, and it certainly does do that. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the book of Genesis. It covers like several thousand years of world history in the space of just a few chapters. It's amazing how God summarizes things. These are the important events from the perspective of our God on this. Now, um, so... Where can I go from here? So the exact timing of the Armageddon campaign is somewhat debated. Let me just kind of summarize this. I have a lot more notes on this, but I'm just going to boil it down, hopefully in an understandable way. Some, you know, People have asked, well, when exactly is Armageddon? Is it before the tribulation? Is it after the tribulation? Is it the thing after the millennium? The answer is no there. Is it in the middle of the tribulation? Is it in the end of the tribulation? Well actually it's in the middle and it and it's in the end. Why? Because it's it's World War 3. Okay? And the final devastating victory for God will occur at the end. So you'd have to say like yeah, it's at the end, but it's kind of at the beginning because this whole area is just brought into major conflict over the time. Um and so yeah, I mean it's a mess. What are you going to do? That's what war is. So Uh, I don't have World War One off the top of my head, nor is there Eight, 18, 17, so three years. And uh, you know, I guess, yeah. So three to four years, World War One. World War Two, the first half of the 40s, right? So, and and of course, the events leading up to. What's the very beginning of World War Two? I mean, what's the clean clean divide? You got thirty nine, right? Right. Right. We became embroiled in it later, so it's a much longer time period, isn't it? So, the, yeah, it's it's not like somebody wakes up one day and says, "Well, let's start a war today." You know, I mean, there's a, there's all kinds of things leading up to it, so. Now, Pentecost summarizes the situation. I say Pentecost, he's J. Dwight Pentecost, an author who wrote a big book in the library you can see on things to come, the future. It says this, As we survey the whole campaign of Armageddon, we observe a number of results. The armies of the South are destroyed. The armies of the Northern Confederacy are smitten by the Lord. The armies of the Beast and of the East are slain by the Lord at the Second Coming. The Beast and the False Prophet are cast into the Lake of Fire. We didn't read that, but it's in 1920. They're just thrown right alive into the lake of fire. They don't die or anything. Um, unbelievers will be purged as a result of these invasions. Satan will be bound. The Lord destroys every hostile force. And He rules as Messiah over the whole earth. That's tremendous. That's what Armageddon does. So Armageddon sets up the kingdom. The final rebellion of Satan in that battle ends the kingdom and sets up the eternal state. A thousand years apart. Okay? So there are two different events. A huge rebellion against God at the end of the tribulation and another huge rebellion against God at the end of the millennium. When are we going to learn, humans, when are we going to learn that rebelling against God nationally, worldwide, uh, or individually is not going to work? It's foolishness. You, you, know, you can't win. right? Against one with infinite resources, infinite wisdom, infinite power, Completely foolish to think you're going to win against God. So there's two huge rebellions against God, two huge victories. Both of the rebellions are demonically influenced. Both involve large military battles against God in the region of Israel. But one is clearly before the thousand years. One is clearly after. The timeline of Revelation makes this clear. Now, as I close, let me just step us back a few feet from the question and look at the overall situation. These events tell us That humanity is, without God's intervention, humanity is utterly hopeless. The best we can come up with on our own is wars, rumors of wars, persecution, hatred, malice, debased behavior. The little periods of peace that we enjoy are unsteady and fragile. What would it take to blow up the world into World War III right now? I said World War Three before. Please understand, it could be World War Seven for all I know. I don't know, but what would it take to light the tinderbox of war right now? We almost did it back in yeah. Okay. You've got the Cuban Missile Crisis. Paying attention. Thirteen days. Very good history. Right. Yeah. Hide, under Hide under your desk. Yeah, like that's going to help. We
1: had growth, yeah. You a small child, you it might
0: be right. Yeah.
1: But looking back at it now, that was a total confirmation. Yeah. Yes. That's an example. That's an example. We then, right.
0: Or we right. Down. Any any dirty bomb, any terrorist activity could set it off. I mean, it could be any number of things. That's the best we can do, my friends, as humans. Our little periods of peace are unsteady. They're fragile. But after a utopian golden age called the Kingdom of Christ, many humans will still wish to fight off God's righteous and perfect rule to form their own Babel-like kingdom once again. Let us build a tower to heaven and make a name for ourselves, they said. God scattered them. But this time God will destroy them. No wonder God must judge these ones with eternal punishment because they will never stop rebelling against God. Even in the face of the most obvious evidence, they will never stop rebelling. No amount of kindly reform or dialogue or education or observation of the perfect messianic government will change their minds. Only defeat and eternal incarceration in a place called hell Will solve the problem of these who rebel against their maker. I wish it weren't so, my friends, but I'm only the reporter telling you what is true, and this is the only this is the only model of the human constitution which makes sense with what you see around you. Everybody wants to say every, all people are good. I scoff at that foolish philosophy. That is that is dumb. I mean, you look at what's happening in our inner cities and tell us that. All people are good. You look at what's happening in, in uh, corruption at the highest levels and tell me that everybody's good. I just heard about one today. I couldn't believe my ears. Some guy uh, in California was at the head of the California pension uh, system. And he steered over a billion dollars of the pension system toward a favored company of his. Oh, he's gone now. I mean, he's fired. Yeah, with a B. I mean, talk about dumb. But the nature of man is such that it will do those things. Corruption at the lowest level, at the highest level, everywhere in between. Oh, Yeah, right. God spare us. God help us to get rid of every vestige of corruption in our own souls and, and, uh, and live righteously for Him. Okay, but that's what this kind of teaches us about the condition of humanity. Very sad situation. Yes, Becky. Okay, Revelation nineteen twenty. We have a question it's an observation. or observation. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes, yes. Becky is relating how the uh, those uh, the beast and the false prophet cast alive into the lake of fire. Something that would seem to extinguish their lives immediately, but evidently, yeah, it is unfathomable. Uh, evidently, God preserves them somehow, or they're killed and resurrected somehow and able to bear that punishment for. Well, a thousand years, it tells us in chapter 20, verse number 10. And listen, friends, somebody would say, oh, that's preposterous. That's why we have to take the book of Revelation symbolically. Well, I ask you this. If they can be in the lake of fire, if they cannot be in the lake of fire for a thousand years, and that's preposterous, how can all of the unredeemed of all of history be in the lake of fire forever after that point? If one is preposterous, the other must be. You know? Um, let's not take the Bible so, as some kind of symbology, as some kind of full metaphor that you just you, you, you talk around it and you never say what it actually says. No, it is what it is. It says what it says. And uh, if God can create the heavens and the earth in six days or six seconds, if he wanted to, uh, he, can, he can manage all of this. How is he going to do that? I don't know, but you know what? That's his that's above my pay grade, okay? That's that's him. Yes, sir. Yes. one
1: microscopic way we can grasp, not contain, not surround, but view the infinite mind of God is just to think about stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: That's incredible. That's not one galaxy. Yes.
1: I've said this before. Astrophysicists conservatively guesstimate there are at least two hundred billion other galaxies. No. The Bible says and he made the stars also. Right. And calls them all right. by name.
0: Yes. Mm.
1: You want to get some view of the magnitude. Right.
0: That's just his creation. That doesn't describe him. That's what he did. Yes. That doesn't surround him. That's only a part of his ways. Yes. Our our, our, uh, Thurman here is pointing out how the vastness of the universe helps you to get a viewpoint on the utter magnitude of God, the infinite magnitude of our God. Yes. One of those stones, right?
1: A speck of grain, it's like a grain of sand to all the sand in the world. in the universe. Correct. And the little ants on
0: it. <laughs> little ants.
1: <laughs> called them rebellious. Yeah. Are going to defeat the God who created everything. Right. That's why he left. Yes.
0: Those of that that human race. Uh, Thurman likens to ants raising their fists at the Creator God. And uh, they who can barely make it beyond the sphere of the moon's orbit, not even yet to Mars, the nearest planet, are going to say, we'll take over for you, God. Our God never sleeps nor slumbers. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, anyway, that's the story there. That's the answer to the question. Now, you are free after we close this service to ask your next question now, okay? But we can't do that right now, All right, Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the privilege to look in Your Word and see that it does have answers for us in these questions. Lord, help us to take them at face value. And Lord, where we don't understand, help us to withhold judgment and to carry on with our reading and understanding and asking questions and so on. But what we do understand, Lord, we pray You'd help us to be obedient to. And in this area of just demonstrating the rebelliousness of humanity, Lord, remove from us that spirit of rebelliousness. We were in it. We were just as the Gentiles walked. uh, Children of wrath, even as the others. But You rescued us. And for that, we thank You and praise You. And take us, Lord, with that knowledge and that joy out from here to be able to enjoy the coming week if You tarry in Jesus' name. Amen.